Let's read together, starting with verse 14. Romans 12, 14, to the end of the chapter. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil, having regard for good things in the sight of all men, or providing things honest, noble, beautiful, just in the sight of all men. Providing those things. That's, that's a, a great way to translate the, the word. We'll, we'll get into it later. It is much as possible as depends on you. Live at peace with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Father, these are some of the most difficult verses in the entire Bible because they strike at the core of our sin nature for vindication and for reprisal. And Lord, the only way we can live this is to crucify ourselves and to live with Christ's life through us. So I ask God today that you would help us to understand this passage. Help us, Father, to confess any known grievance and sin that's keeping our fellowship from being full and enjoyable with each other but most of all with you. And Father, help us to find ways to live this out in practical, everyday life. We pray this for your glory so that people will see the reflection of Jesus Christ in your church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. Um, there's a an abrupt change in the tone in this passage in verse 14. Um, this is sort of a part two of last week's sermon. The last week's, the title was The Marks of a Christian, and this is The Marks of a Christian. What, what does a Christian look like? What should a Christian look like? Because we don't always look like this. And so the marks of a Christian are distinct from the world. They should be distinct from the world, right? We all agree with that. And the first marks had to do with really the way that we interact with each other as Christians in a lovingly, brotherly kindness, um, distributing to the needs of one another, giving preference to each other in the body of Christ, accepting each other's differences, and appreciating each other's giftedness, that's the mark of a, of, a, of a Christian assembly. And in verse 14, Paul shifts the tone, dealing more with how does a believer deal with those who are outside of the Christian church. 
and in particularly those who are aggressively opposing the message of Christ. And there are places in the world where this is being lived out to a degree that you and I have no comprehension of. In the country of Indonesia, it's the largest Muslim country in the world. On the paper, on books, it has the freedom of religion. But since 2004, nearly 500 Bible-believing evangelical groups of Christians have had their place of worship burned to the ground. On such an evening, a mob of Muslims assembled themselves outside of a church. They didn't know that the pastor and the wife and all of his younger children were inside the church. They began to, to douse it with gasoline and to bust the windows open, to throw bombs inside of the church building. And when the pastor came out, pleading with them. They threatened to behead him, his wife, his children. So they fled inside the church for refuge and began to pray. And sometimes God intervenes. And sometimes God allows the acts of wicked men to take place. Their oldest son was, was gone and the church was, church was engulfed in flames. And the oldest son returned and the officials were there, the government officials, and we're not going to do really anything to prosecute whoever perpetrated this, but his father, his mother, his younger brothers and sisters, their bodies were charred beyond recognition. And one of the lead government officials began to threaten him and said, I don't want to see any reprisal. And he says, I know who did this. I'm going there. He says, no, you're not. He says, yes, I am. I'm going there to tell them the love of God and why I'm a Christian and what Jesus has come to do. We don't understand that level of not repaying evil for evil. We don't understand what it means to bless those who really want to curse the cause of Christ. And I think time is coming in America where we need to be prepared for an escalation of this kind of violence and hatred toward Christians. I heard a story, a true story of a, of a street evangelist and he was preaching the good news, preaching the gospel and he was confronted by a couple of hecklers who were from the uh, transgender and uh, gay movement, the pride movement, and viciously, verbally attacking him, trying to just bait him to get into a verbal argument back. And he refused to take the bait. And he just graciously kept talking about the gospel and how much Christ loved them and how we are all sinners. And it has Christ has died for all of us. And that I am simply another sinner sharing the good news of I have been cleansed, I have been forgiven, and this is all that God has to offer you. And he refused to, to render back 
evil for evil and railing for railing, contrawise he gave blessing, knowing thereunto that he had been called to inherit a blessing. The Bible goes on to say, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him eschew evil and let him pursue good. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. And who is he that will be harming you? Who is it if you be followers of that which is good? But rather sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be always ready to give an answer to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you and you do it with meekness and gentleness. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing. For Christ, our Savior, our example, also suffered. The just one suffered for the unjust that he might bring us to God. That is the heart and soul of Jesus. And we are to emulate that as difficult as that is. When we feel being pushed against our natural response is to push back. And this is when we really need Christ. So not only is there a change just in this tone, there's a change in the grammar. This passage has got four imperatives. The passage before was filled with participles that talked about how to live the Christian life in the midst of other believers. And these are strong commands that are given to us. There are infinitives that are used as commands as well. In verse 15, rejoice, that's an infinitive, but it's used as a command. Weep. We're commanded to do these. We're commanded to have empathy. So what are the marks of a Christian in the second passage that we're going to look at? One is this charitable spirit. Another mark of a true believer is empathy. Another mark is unity through humility. And the final mark in 17 through 21 is that you and I are called into a spiritual warfare. And our battles, they are spiritual battles. We may think that they are physical. We may think that they are uh, in, in an earthly realm, but they are not. Our, our warfare that we are waged against is spiritual wickedness in high places. And we don't fight spiritual wickedness with our fleshly thinking. We do it with God's might and power. We defeat evil with that which is holy and lovely. That seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? In fact, so much of the Christian life is counterintuitive. In order to be truly a wise person, I've got to admit that I am nothing but a child. In order to be wise, I have got to be willing to become a fool for Jesus. If I really want to be strong, I've got to acknowledge how weak I really am. If I desire victory in my life, I achieve it through surrender. Christ. Evil is triumphed by kindness. I read a story this week in 
a devotion book that a sister in Christ got me. It's called Extreme Devotions. It's written by Operation Mobilization. No, it's not. Voice of the Martyr. Voice of the Martyr. And the story that grabbed me this week, I thought fit pretty well in this first um, command. Bless those who persecute you. Because the, the man is still alive and he's still in the country of Bangladesh and his identity needs to be hid, Voice of the Martyrs only put his first initial as A. And he's a, he's a missionary pastor there in Bangladesh. And he had some very successful meetings, people coming to Christ. And some of the government high officials were were trying to, to, to stop this movement of, of Christianity. And so they hired a hitman. The government hired a hitman to take this, this brother out. And he arrived at his home early in the evening, and he walked into his study, and there, there the hitman was, was standing there with a, a loaded revolver pointing at him. And he just kept waiting for him to fire, kept waiting. And out of frustration, the man ran from the room, ran from the house. And so he just began to pray for this individual. God, I, I don't know what just happened right there. But Lord, that man needs Jesus. Lord God, if you could just bring him back so that I can tell him about Christ. Well, the phone rang. And it was the man who came to assassinate him. And he says, why didn't you pull the trigger? He says, my arm my arm would not move. It's paralyzed. I still can't move my arm. And he says, what do I do? He says, come back to my house. So he had tea set for this guy. And he sat down and he shared Jesus Christ with him. And at the moment that he asked Christ to save him, he put his faith in Jesus, his arm started to move. He says, ah. he says your Jesus is real. No wonder the government officials are so afraid your Jesus. He asked him, what was the official's name that put this contract on my life? A week later, he went to that official's house to tell him about Jesus. He wasn't home, but he went in, and his son, who had been sick, bedridden sick for 18 years, he went over and he began to pray for him. He laid his hands on this sick son of this man who tried to kill him, and the son said, I don't know what happened, but the power of God I felt infuse my body. And this disease that had kept me bedridden for 18 years, it was gone. And I have prayed to trust Jesus. And the father comes in and he's furious. And his daughter-in-law says, Dad, wait. I mean, his daughter. The son-in-law is the one who was healed. He says, Father, listen. Listen to the story of Jesus. Now, the official never trusted Christ up to well, to, the, to up to now, to what we know, and uh, the, the devotional didn't go on to say what happened to him afterwards. But it did say this: that his entire policy toward Christians in Bangladesh has changed. That no longer are they under arrest. No longer are they threatened. No longer are they tortured or put to death for their faith in Christ. 
because a man decided, I am not going to repay this persecution. I'm going to repay it with blessing this man. Now, in this context, what does it mean to bless someone? It doesn't mean simply to pray or to pronounce a blessing. Not in this context. It means to do something something active that shows that you want to prosper that individual with kindness, either spiritually, emotionally, or physically. That when you have an opportunity to bestow that act, that you will be faithful to do it. So to bless those means to be actively seeking opportunities to make a positive impact in their life. It's not simply to pray. It's not simply to say, God, I want you to to do something warm and fuzzy for that guy or that gal. And it's repeated twice. The imperative is repeated twice. Bless, yes, I'm going to say it again, bless and do not curse. And the second command, stop cursing, literally is a past tense command to stop doing something. So it's it means that, that this is what you want to do. This is where your mind is going. It's the nat- natural impulse is to render something evil back. And to curse means to use your words to attack their character and to diminish their reputation. Only those who've experienced grace can practice this. We are to forgive others as we have been forgiven. When you and I experience grace, God enables us to extend grace to others. Forgive even as you have been forgiven. So I think one of the first things that you and I need to do when we look at this passage, we need to understand how much God has forgiven us. We need to understand His marvelous grace that holds nothing against us. That will enable us to have the mind of Christ. I want us to just jump over really quick, and you don't have to turn because I'll read it for you, but if you'd like to turn to a parallel passage in the gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43. You've heard it was said to love your enemies. I mean, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. This is verse 44. Bless those who curse you. Do good. See, the, this blessing is an active, active choice a volitional decision. It's a deliberate act. That's what God did when he blessed you and I. God made a deliberate act to do something. So when we bless people, we make a choice to to make a deliberate action to do good to those who despitefully use you and persecute you. And here's the result, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, what is our Father in heaven like? He sends rain and the sun on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same. If you greet those who are your brother only, and this is 
a powerful little phrase, what do you do more than others? That is the mark of a Christian. What do we do more than others? Are our lives unique? Does it show the uniqueness of a kind and charitable spirit? True greatness is all about selfless sacrifice. Verse 16, going back over to Romans chapter 12, and I just sort of summarized verse 16 with the word empathy. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice, we're to weep with those who weep. And then verse 16 really kind of just follows it along, be of the same mind one toward another. Do not set your mind on high things. So let's just kind of walk through that and piece it together. Empathy. What is empathy? The definition of empathy is the desire to share in the feelings of another person. To put yourself where they're at. That is the mark of a Christian. Is to try to, to walk where they have walked, to feel what they have felt. An unknown author, don't know who the author was, but he said, when you are at your height of joy, and when you are at your lowest of sorrow, that really points to the deepest reality of who you are. And I got to think about thinking about that. What is it that brings you the most joy in your life? Those things identify who you really are at your core. Is it worldly things? I know this is kind of a rabbit trail. But those things identify who you really are. Do you feel this incredible joy when you know that another person has come to salvation in Christ? Does it bring you deep sorrow when you see atrocities done to innocent victims? That will identify who you really are. And as believers, we need to be able to identify and to empathize with people in, in their very core of who they are. We are to be selfless. We are to be looking out. This is really what Jesus Christ came to do. You think about Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, maybe, I don't know what chapter it is, but it says this. It says, don't be looking on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. Esteem others better in yourselves. And then it picks up this line that says, let this mind be in you. This attitude that other people are more important than me that their interests are more important than my interests. Let this kind of mind, this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, didn't think his equality with God was something to cling to. But he made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant and found in the fashion of a man he became obedient to the point of death. Even the death, the shameful death of the cross, 
Let that mind be in you. Jesus Christ identified so much with you and I to the greatest extent. When Jesus was going to be baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist says, no, I'm so unworthy. I'm not even worthy to get down and unstrap your sandals. And Jesus said this, it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to identify completely with lost humanity that I have come to save. I am going to become sin for those who are sinful. I, the just one, am going to die for all those who are unjust. And old Jesus committed no sin. He went through baptism to identify with the sinner all the way of his ministry, from his commissioning all the way to the cross. Jesus identifies with you and I in the same way. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So as believers, we are to empathize with others. I think it will give us many opportunities for ministry if we do that. Spontaneous ministries. Jesus was just walking through a village, the village of Nain. During his departure of that little village, a widow in a procession meets him. This widow had only one son, and that son had died. And the Bible tells us that Jesus had compassion and told the woman, stop weeping. He identified with her. He rejoiced with those who were rejoicing, and Jesus would weep with those who are weeping. He was of the same mind. Unity is found through humility. So verse 16 is sort of a re statement of verse 15, that I'm rejoicing with those who are rejoicing, I'm weeping with those who are weeping. Let me just go to the original Greek text here to try to explain this first phrase. Be of the same mind toward one another. Verse 16. The first words of this text is the same. It's to-auta. Auta is a pronoun. It's in the neuter. So it's talking about ideas, thoughts. The next is a preposition for one another, and then it ends with a participle, phroneo, which means to think and have the attitude. So literally... Paul is saying, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, because I want you to be thinking, and I want you to have the same attitude toward the things that are for someone else. Get your mind off of yourself. Get your mind onto others. Be thinking about how you can identify with them, and you do it through humility. You 
you take your eyes off of yourself and you look at others. So it doesn't mean to have the same mind doesn't mean that we all have the same opinion, that we all have the identical convictions, but to think the same thing for one another. Paul is not advocating here uniformity, where we all look alike, talk alike, think alike. We'll never achieve that. But what Paul is advocating here is unanimity. I don't know if I said that right. That we are unanimously for each other and and not for ourselves merely. We see things differently. We desire the same things. Literally, we are to think, and the word on the same is neuter, so we're to think for one another the exact same way. So the application would be, don't have divided plans. Don't have divided interests. Don't be pursuing different goals. Aim at the same purpose of glorifying Christ and honoring God. This is achieved by the next phrase. Verse 16, the next phrase is don't set your mind on high things. So how do we have that same focus, that same purpose, that same mindset that wants to go in the same direction, not Uniformity, but unanimity, that we have one purpose here, one agenda, and it's done by thinking not on high things. Notice it's neuter again. So the idea is plans, interests, goals. They should not be self-centered to advance our own agendas. So how do I have this same mind? I come down off of my high horse and I think about what is in the best interest of Christ. What is in the best interest of others? It's not to have high-mindedness. The positive side of this is don't, is to to associate with the humble. And, And the word humble, it's interesting also, it is in the neuter as well. And it, well, it could be masculine. The Greek is, is, is clear that the first two are neuter, and then this one, the form is either neuter or masculine. But it makes sense that this too is the idea of, a, of, of just our, our thoughts, our processes, our, our goals, our purposes, to associate with lowly purposes. And that's how we achieve having the same mind, to um, the things that really matter in people's lives. Those are the things that we are to to really care about. Don't be in the habit of always thinking that you are right. And and that's kind of the, the next phrase here in verse 16. But associate with the humble. A teachable, humble spirit opens the door for unity. Now, the rest of it really is the passage of spiritual warfare. And this is where it really, really gets difficult to live the Christian life. 
We defeat evil with what is lovely. Now, this, this passage is talking about our interpersonal relationships with one another. So when it says, recompense no man evil for evil, this is not talking within the civil government. This is not referring to legal matters. This is in our relationships with each other, and particularly with the lost world, where we're entering into spiritual warfare with them. Those who treat us maliciously and who have a wicked intent to stop the cause of Christ. This is when you and I need to be crucified with Christ. And Paul gives us four ways to defeat evil. The first one is very, very simple. You just stop it right in its tracks. Right where it starts. Repay no one evil for evil. You stop it before it begins to escalate. When they dish out evil to you, you stop it right there. That's where it ends. I think that this first step will end about 90% of conflict. We can take this principle into our domestic lives as well. It isn't just talking. There's a, there's a lot of application to this. You want to stop interpersonal conflict, just stop it in its tracks. Stop it dead. You get a nasty email. You get a nasty text, whatever it might be. Don't you sit down and start something, something back that's going to be just as nasty. Don't you write that email. Don't you pick up the... You just stop it right there. The Proverbs tells us in 26.20, where there is no wood, the fire goes out. They may be sitting there, what's he going to say back? What's she going to say back? I can't wait. But he said, I'm going to really give it to them. No. You just stop it right in its tracks. This is the way, and that takes spiritual discipline. That takes spiritual discipline. Because your natural response is, I want to tell somebody else about what's going on. The rest of that Proverb 26.20 says this, where there is no wood, the fire goes out. But then the gossip continues to heap fire on it. So you can decide, I'm going to be part of the solution or I'm going to be part of the problem. And by the grace of God, I will not render. The word render or repay literally means to give back in proportion what is due them. It's, it, it's, a, it's a term that has to do with, with when you've worked and you have rendered a wage back what you should get. And as the believer, we're going to stop and we're going to say, no, I'm not going to. And here's the caution. You and I are not omniscient. Okay, you got that? We need to understand that. We don't know what's going on in their heart. We don't know what's going on in their minds. Only God does. And so we had better put the brakes on. That's, that's the first point. Proverbs 17, 14 says this, the beginning of strife is like releasing water. If you ever tried to stop flowing water, you can't do it. And when you release strife, that's what it's like. You just 
Once it's gone, it's gone. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. Evil is that which is injurious and destructive. And then the rest of this verse says, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. I think the King James accurately translates this. It says, provide what is honest in the sight of all men. And that's hard for us to really to, to kind of understand what that means, so let me just kind of break it down for you. The word provide is a compound word in the original language. It means to be proactive. And you think about the, the English word provide. If I'm going to provide for my family, I have to be proactive. I have to think in advance. And that's really what provide means. It means to think in advance. So I don't just simply don't render something back. I take the positive step of thinking in advance how I can do. And the word honest actually means lovely, beautiful, good report. What can I do that is beautiful? It's the Greek word kalos. It's an adjective, and it means beautiful, honorable, honest, good. And I think in advance, what can I do in a positive way now to influence this relationship that's at a schism point? So provide means to think beforehand. You're not leaving it to chance. And you are not relying on your emotions or your feelings. But you are making it a matter of a fixed principle to do what is right. Make it a matter of principle. Make it a matter of practice. When you are wronged, that you will not be overtaken by that matter. But you will overtake that matter with that which is good. So the first point that Paul gives us, stop it before it can escalate. Verse 18, the next step is take the initiative to pursue peace. As the Christian, as the believer, you and I are to take, we are not to wait for them to approach us. We are the Christian. We are the follower of Jesus. We have God's grace. We have the Holy Spirit. You and I are new creatures in Christ. And so many times we're saying, well, I ain't going to budge until they budge. That's not God's way of doing it. He says, as much as depends on you, if it is possible. Notice he says it's if it's possible. Because peaceful living is always contingent on the other person's reaction, isn't it? You can only do so much. But as much as depends on you, you take the initiative to make peace. From the believer's perspective, we are to take the first step. Notice that he says, as much depends on you, that limits us in one way. One, we cannot speak peace as much as depends on you. So for the first thing that we've got to notice is that we cannot seek peace at the cost of truth. We cannot seek peace at the cost of compromising the cost of Christ. You might think, well, if I do this, it'll bring peace. But you've got to ask yourself, am I compromising truth? Am I compromising the message of Jesus? If you can't do that, that's, that's one of the conditions. Because sometimes 
You just can't get peace because you are not going to change your conviction about who Jesus Christ is. But the second condition has to do with the other party. We can't always determine how they're going to react. One can only be responsible for their own actions. The third principle, or the third step, is simply let God work. Now this is a step of faith, isn't it? Verse 19. Beloved, and notice how he addresses them. The Greek word for beloved is agapetos. That's who we are. We are the beloved. We are to be loving people. So he's addressing you as loving people. This is who you are. we got to identify with who I am, and then I've got to act out who I am. That's, a, that's so much of the Christian life, is just realizing who I really am in Christ, and then living and acting out what Jesus says about me. I am a child of God. You are a child of God. To be a child of God means that you love those who don't like you, right? That's who we are. We're the beloved ones. So he says, beloved ones, do not avenge yourself. So from the believer's point, we are to do just the opposite of what our flesh desires and what the world would do. When we do this, we give place to wrath. Verse 19. But rather give place to wrath. Now, it wouldn't sound good in English to say this, give place to the wrath. But that's exactly what it says in the original language. So the direct article here is talking about God. When you and I give place, and this takes faith. God, I'm not going to take this matter into my own hand. I am going to trust you. And to give place, what, let me just tell you in, in common vernacular what that means. God, I'm going to let you handle this. I'm going to take myself out. God, I am going to just turn this over to your chastisement, your discipline, your will. So by giving place, we are submitting to God's justice, not ours. Sin is never wanting or lacking when we assume the role of God and start blaming and start pointing the finger and wanting to enact justice. This must be an act of faith because what you and I are doing when we give place to wrath, when we're saying, God, you take care of this, we're doing exactly what Jesus did. And Jesus is our example. In the book of First Peter, we find these words that Christ is our example in these kind of situations let me just read this to you who talking about Jesus when he was reviled did not revile in return Jesus when he suffered he threatened not 
this is what he did, and this is what you and I are to do. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. So that's what we do when we give place for God. The third, and I mean the fourth step, is we overcome sin with sacrifice. That's exactly what Jesus did, didn't he? He overcame sin. He was victorious over sin through sacrifice, through humility, through laying down his life. So verse 20 says, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he is thirsty, you give him drink. Now, this last phrase it's subject to various interpretations, for in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. One interpretation is that you will shame this person. And that's a, a very possible interpretation. They will feel such shame and embarrassment, and in a sense have coals of fire heaped on their head. Another possible interpretation is, and it comes from the ancient Near Eastern culture, that when your fire went out in your home and someone came to your house and you still had burning coals on your hearth and you gave them and usually fires went out in the middle of the night so this was not an opportune time for somebody to come knocking on the door get you out of bed and tell you that their fire had gone out and so they would come and they would have these large platters and then you would take coals out of your fire hearth, out of your fire pit and you would fill that tray up for them when they had a need, when they were hungry, when they were thirsty, when they were cold. You filled up that tray for them and then they carried it. You've seen pictures of the people in the Middle East, ancient Near East, the way they carried things on their head and that warmth that they needed and so desperately wanted. You provided it for them. And they're cold and now they're shivering and they're standing outside and they're walking back and they're being warmed and satisfied by what you have provided for them. That's God's method of overcoming evil, overcoming personal attacks. And I tell you, it, it doesn't get the, the where where this really begins. It begins in your own home. It begins with your your family. It is the it is the ultimate test of your Christian virtue when you have a family member, and I'm, I'm not pointing my fingers at anybody, I'm talking to myself right now. And I don't want to go into any specifics because I, my wife knows it's, it's, our, it's our, a daughter and we, we love her dearly. But bless my wife, anytime she sends anything encouraging, godly, just venom spews out. And our natural tendency, and it, it, it's everywhere. It's at work. 
y'all know what I'm talking about because we're human. And I got the same kind of fleshly, stinking, rotten feet y'all do. So I can, I can tell you what you're thinking somewhat. But this is where we really can take God at his word. Because ultimately, what, what do I want to do? What do I want to see? I want to see this loved one come back to Jesus. But if I fire what I want to fire back, I have pushed that person further and further and further from Christ. And God's battle and God's warfare is so opposite. It's, you don't fight fire with fire in the, in the spiritual realm. You fight fire with love and kindness and goodness and humility. And so you don't overcome evil except by sacrifice. The enemy is one permanently. The enemy is one permanently, not because you won the battle of the argument, but they are won permanently by a change of heart. Let them carry those back hot coals back to their cold house and know that it was you who warmed them. So the marks of a mature Christian, a spirit-filled Christian, is this charitable spirit, this kindness. It is empathy. A, a mature, spirit-filled Christian doesn't have his eyes on himself. It's not about high and lofty things that you want to achieve, but you're down here where everybody else meets. The hard things in life where people just need a friend they need somebody to put their arm around you and you around them. That's Christ-likeness, empathizing with people. It's defeating the enemy with kindness. And it's finding unity through humility. So let us just measure ourselves this week and say, what mark am I missing? And what can I do? How can I provide things that are lovely in the sight of that person? How can I think in advance what I'm going to do for that person that really is really agitating me? So I want to end with one last illustration. And it's my, my mother-in-law. She probably is my spiritual hero. <laughs> and so many stories about Tracy growing up. Um, her mom, when she became a believer, I mean, this lady was incredible. She had she had go-go boots because she used to go to dances. She had all these mini skirts and ungodly clothes and, <laughs> and Elvis Presley records, you know, the Elvis of Elvis and all of his gyrations. <laughs> and when she got saved, she came home and she threw it all in her backyard and burned it all. I bet those Elvis records are worth something today. <laughs> That's my fleshly mind thinking. And my father-in-law said, what is going on with this lady? She's flipped her lid. I mean, he could see the smoke you know, from a quarter of a mile away billowing up out of his backyard. He thought the house was on fire. 
He's you know ready to call the, the fire department. He gets home and his wife's burning all this stuff. But she was she was so changed by the love of Jesus. And they had some neighbors that were just the most difficult people you ever want to know. And one of the boys took a BB gun and shot my beautiful bride right above the eyebrow. I mean, that close to taking an eye out. And Becky sat down with the kids. And she said, let's start praying for that family. Let's ask God to do something wonderful for that family. And I'm going to be providing things. I'm going to do something. I'm going to take some thought what I can do. So she baked a cake. And she took it to that neighbor's house. Now, it doesn't end the way we think it's going to end. But God did something. A week later, the main neighbors moved. <laughs> so I, I, wasn't, I wasn't expecting that either in the story. But she, what did she do? She said, God, I'm going to back out of the way. And God, I'm going to let you have space to move. And that's what God wants us to do. That's the way we fight our spiritual fights. So let's close with prayer. Father, God, we thank you that you have got a plan that is so beautiful, so good, that our enemies no longer become our enemies if we follow your protocol. Our enemies become our friends. And Lord willing, they can become our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, change us from the inside out so it has practical application to the people that we meet and rub against every single